Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Marissa Cervantes, Executive Compliance Director for the Just One Project. The nonprofit's end-of-year giving campaign is underway through the end of the year, and they've also launched a new charitable gangster program. Marissa, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So what exactly is the Just One Project? The Just One Project is a grassroots 501c3 nonprofit. We were founded in 2014, and our mission is to increase access to food, resources, and services to build a stronger, healthier, and more connected community. Our roots go back to our founder, Brooke Neubauer, when she had her first philanthropic experience over the holidays. And that was such a moving experience for her that she wanted to be able to create more opportunities for people like her to give back. And that's how we started. We eventually grew into addressing food insecurity by doing our mobile food distributions that we call pop-up and give mobile markets. This is something we launched in 2016 when we were contacted by Del Monte Foods after them seeing a viral video and they connected with us and they wanted to provide us 25,000 pounds worth of free fruits and vegetables which we happily took and Brooke worked really hard to get a group of volunteers because we didn't have our own trucks. We didn't have our own location yet. And so she worked with her connections to get a group to drive out to California to pick up this produce and brought it back to Las Vegas. And we just distributed to the community and it's just, we've just grown ever since. Wow. Awesome. All right. So speaking of giving back during the holiday season, what is your end of year giving campaign all about? Yeah. So right now we have two ongoing campaigns. So one is we are part of the giving machine and our location is at downtown Summerlin and this goes until December 29th. So there's plenty of opportunity to go there and to look at the giving machine, which is pretty cool. It's like a vending machine and they have selective organizations that where they can sponsor certain items. And so we are there. And then also we have our new charitable gangster program. It's a key component for our upcoming end of year giving campaign. This is where we invite people to become uh, quote unquote charitable gangsters by signing up for our monthly giving initiative. It's just like a subscription. It's pretty neat. So our supporters can contribute a fixed amount each month to make lasting impact of our mission. In return, they'll enjoy a monthly newsletter filled with updates on our organization's work, gain insight into the difference that they're making, and receive exclusive swag items tailored to this unique program. By becoming a charitable gangster, our supporters will not only provide vital ongoing support, but they will also become part of a dedicated community that is committed to making a positive change. There's different levels or options for people to give starting going from $10 to $1,000. Okay, so basically, if someone signs up as a charitable gangster, 
They can choose to give just $10 a month if that's all that they can afford. And what kind of difference would $10 a month make? Yeah, $10 a month is is huge to us. This will support one meal a week for a senior in need. At the Just One Project, we are part of Meals on Wheels. So we provide weekly deliveries to seniors who are homebound and have difficulty preparing meals for themselves. And so your support of $10 can help provide a meal to these seniors. Okay. And what if they were to donate $100 a month or $1,000 a month? Yeah. So $25 a month will support a basket of produce for a family of two. $50 a month supports a week's worth of groceries for a family of four. $100 a month supports a week's worth of hot meals for a senior. $250 a month supports a month's worth of groceries for a family of four. $500 a month supports a week of attendance in our Youth Leadership Academy. And then $1,000 a month supports grocery distribution for 10 families. Nice. That's awesome. Okay, so then how does someone sign up if they want to become a charitable gangster and start donating monthly for the new year? So they can sign up for monthly donations online at our website, thejustoneproject.org. And then also, if someone is not interested in doing the monthly donations, they can also sign up online at our website to do a one-time donation. Okay. And how does it work exactly if they want to go to the giving machine in downtown Summerlin and donate that way? So the giving machine is very user-friendly. When you walk up to it, it's in downtown Summerlin and it's across from Macy's and it's right next to Makers and Finders. And you can't miss it. It looks like a giant vending machine. There are two sides to it. And so they can go to the vending machine and then enter the number of whatever they want to support from the different categories and pay with a swipe of their card. <laughs> nice. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Just, you know, just to try Let, Let's go make a donation just because it's fun. <laughs> so fun. I actually, um, I donated myself. So when we were there for the grand opening, it was just, it was really fun. So I was so excited to be one of the first people to make a donation. It's, it's really fun. And then <laughs> receipt for the giving machine, you can get them sent to you by text. The proof that the donation was made. Okay, awesome. And we've talked yeah. about donating, but what if someone wants to get involved another way, maybe by volunteering or helping out in a different way? Yeah, of course. Volunteers are who help us serve 20 plus thousand people every single month. So they are the heart and soul of our organization. And so we can accept volunteers of all ages. We actually, with something you, really unique about the Just One Project is we do not have age limitations. So families can bring their young ones to come volunteer alongside them. And the best way to sign up to volunteer is on our website online. They can go to the link at our website and then they can also take a peek at what volunteer opportunities are available. We have volunteer opportunities Monday through Friday. And then also on the third Saturday of every month, we also recruit hundreds of volunteers to come serve alongside of our team at our pop-up and gifts. Awesome. Okay. So once again, thejustoneproject.org is the website to go to. You can find out more about the Just One Project and what they're doing in the community. You can sign up to volunteer and volunteers of all ages are welcome. So bring the whole family. You can also make a one-time donation on the website, or you can sign up to become a charitable gangster, which is a monthly donation anywhere from $10 to $1,000 a month can help many people in our community. 
So all of that is at thejustoneproject.org. And if you want to take advantage of the end of year giving campaign by donating through the giving machine instead of online, the giving machine is located at downtown Summerlin across from Macy's and it's up and running until December 29th. So just walk up to the giving machine, swipe your card, choose your donation amount, and you're good to go. So once again, the website for all the information, thejustoneproject.org, thejustoneproject.org. And we've been speaking with Marissa. She's the Executive Compliance Director for the Just One Project. And Marissa, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting us know more about what you're doing in the community and how people listening can get involved in helping out as well. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. When a student lacks basic needs like food, clothing, and learning materials, attending school can be a challenge. And that can make it impossible to thrive. At Communities in Schools, we address this issue by ensuring that students have everything they need to re-engage in learning, access to technology and school supplies, and even emotional support. By bringing communities of support to students, we're achieving equitable learning conditions. And that's what Communities in Schools is all about. Learn more at communitiesinschools.org. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Catherine Pugh, Senior Manager of Digital Health for the Consumer Technology Association, or CTA. You know the CTA as the organization that puts on the CES show here in Las Vegas every year. Their new study shows that technology will play a critical role in improving health care for women, but the U.S. health system can't readily meet those needs. Catherine, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Heather. I'm glad to be here. So first of all, what exactly is the Consumer Technology Association? Yes, thank you. The Consumer Technology Association is the trade association for the consumer technology industry. We have more than a thousand members in a very diverse membership. More than 80% of that membership is small businesses and startups, which really drive innovation. And as you mentioned, we also are best known for being the owners and producers of the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Which is coming up. <laughs> it is. <laughs> now, what did your recent study on women's health care reveal? Yes. Yeah, so our, our recent study, the future of women's digital health solutions that surveyed more than a thousand women nationwide it revealed that top line that women are very excited about the promise that digital health solutions holds. Two in three women believe digital health solutions are the future of healthcare, and uh, 64% believe that digital health can help lower healthcare costs, which is important because when we looked at the barriers that women face in accessing care, high healthcare costs is the number one barrier cited along with needing to prioritize health, limited appointment availability and office hours, and access to affordable health insurance. Okay, so how can technology address those needs, especially the high cost? Yeah, technology is a really important way to drive down costs for patients. So if you take telehealth, for example, Patients aren't having to pay for child care out of the home while they go to doctor's appointments or paying for transportation. It also shortens the time that they need to be away from work. Uh, they need to take time off from work uh, and lose wages to go to a doctor's appointment. But also 
It can drive down healthcare costs with remote monitoring that can help alert doctors to changes in patients' health condition and avoid hospitalization, avoid unnecessary emergency department visits. We're very excited for all of the promise that technology holds in healthcare. Nice. Okay. Now, what's the White House's new initiative all about? Yes. So last month, the White House announced the White House Initiative on Women's Health Research, and it is very important. They are focusing on the historic lack of funding and lack of focus on women's health, which results from a lack of treatments really focused on women's health issues. And so the Women's Health Initiative They established across the federal government, which must deliver recommendations to advance women's health research within 45 days, which is very ambitious. And so that seems that they're taking this very seriously. And they're going to be targeting some high impact areas where additional investment will be transformative. Okay, so how could this new White House initiative potentially shine a light on some of the challenges that we've been talking about around access to healthcare, but also how technology could fit into the equation? Yes. So the initiative, when it was announced, they really highlighted the lack of funding that women's health research has seen over the years and how that has affected down the line, how we see treatments developed and delivered and just historic lack of access. We hope that with the study that CTA put out and other studies that are being done about the promise of digital health, that the um, federal governments, including the Department of Health and Human Services, will include technology as a potential solution and area for focus and investment of the initiative moving forward. Okay, awesome. So where can people go if they want to learn more about this topic, about the state of women's health care, digital health care, and how technology can be a solution? I would say cta.tech is a great place to start. Um, you can find our women's health research there. And then as well, I just wanted to mention the Consumer Electronics Show is coming up. That's January 9th through 12th. And the Digital Health Summit at CES, we will have a women's health panel as well as a health equity panel on how technology can address both of those issues as part of our Digital Health Summit at CES. And we'll be bringing a lot of healthcare leaders from across the country to focus on those issues for the days that we're at CES. So encourage people to check out the website and then also join us at the Digital Health Summit at CES in January. Nice. Okay. So cta.tech is the website to go to. cta.tech, it stands for Consumer Technology Association. You can check out the women's health research that they have on the site, as well as the other research that's available. And don't forget, CES is coming up. That's the Consumer Electronics Show. It is happening in Las Vegas, as does every year in January. This year, it's January 9th to 12th. And be sure to take a look at the Digital Health Summit put on by CTA. And we've been speaking with Catherine Pugh. She's the Senior Manager of Digital Health for the Consumer Technology Association. And Catherine, I really appreciate your time being here, sharing with us this new information, this great innovation that's happening, and what the potential is for healthcare, especially for women. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather. I appreciate it. If you're a woman, talk to your doctor by age 25 about your risk of getting breast cancer. More women under 40 are getting breast cancer, and these cancers are often more deadly. The American College of Radiology recommends you ask your doctor if you should get a mammogram before age 40, need other tests like an MRI with your yearly mammogram, 
or if at high risk should be checked more than once a year. For more information, visit mammographysavelives.org. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Craig Chepke, a board-certified psychiatrist who specializes in treating adult patients with treatment-resistant depression. During the holiday season, some people experience the holiday blues, but how do we know if it's actually more serious? Dr. Chepke, thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure to be here. So what are the signs and symptoms of clinical depression? Well, I'm really glad you asked that. And this is the re- really the reason why that a partner with Johnson Johnson to be here today, because major depressive disorder is an extremely serious condition that affects about one in 10 adults in the United States. So it's incredibly common. And we want to make sure that we're differentiating, like you said, just the general winter holiday blues versus something that could be more serious and need treatment like major depressive disorder. So to answer your question, the holiday blues or it's the winter and you just had the time change, the way that the sun sets so early, the weather is getting cold, just people feel like a little bit down. We don't have the same level of energy and it might be a little bit run down, but that's different for major depressive disorder. Major depressive disorder, people have a much more substantial level of symptoms. So they feel that their mood is down, but it's way, way far down. But they also lose interest or pleasure in doing things, even things that they normally find very exciting or interesting that they love to do. Their sleep could be affected, their appetite, they have difficulty concentrating often, and often can feel worthless and to the point even that they may potentially develop suicidal ideation. So it's a very serious condition. Okay, now some of what you describe around the holiday blues sounds like it could be something like seasonal affective disorder or SAD. So how do we know if it's not that instead of just the holiday blues? Yeah, so there's really kind of a spectrum. So holiday blues and then seasonal affective disorder would be a step up from that, I would say. And then even beyond that would be major depressive disorder. So really, it goes to how much is it affecting your function and the quality of your life? because things like the holiday blues or just some seasonal affective symptoms, those normally people can get by and continue to do their day-to-day tasks and general interactions with their friends, family, loved ones, and mostly carry about close to normal. They're just not feeling quite as, as much themselves. But with major depressive disorder, then the functioning is drastically diminished. In fact, worldwide, major depressive disorder is the number one source of disability in the world. So it really prevents the person from living their their lives at home or at school, as the case may be, if in college, something like that, maybe, or advanced degrees, and at work as well. Okay. So major depressive disorder and clinical depression are two phrases for the same thing? Yeah. So the major depressive disorder is what we as psychiatrists, the, the technical medical term for it. And then clinical depression is a term that is commonly used by the average public, but it's not something that we use medically, but generally refer to more or less the same thing. Okay. Now, your specialty is treatment-resistant depression specifically. What exactly is that? Yeah, that's a great question, Heather. So a lot of people, when they go and uh, if they have major depressive disorder diagnosed by a healthcare provider, then they often will be prescribed an antidepressant. And for a lot of people, the first antidepressant helps them. And then if the first one doesn't, their healthcare provider might switch it. And then the second antidepressant might help them. So what we define as treatment-resistant depression is when at least two antidepressants that were given at a high enough dose for a long enough period of time, usually four to six, six to eight weeks, somewhere in that time range, 
if neither of those antidepressants work, then that's what we consider treatment-resistant depression. But just because it's called treatment-resistant depression doesn't mean there's no hope. Yeah. So if it's treatment-resistant, then what are the available treatment options? I know. I sometimes like to joke when I'm teaching that uh, psychiatry can't name anything right. We call it (laughs) treatment-resistant depression, but there are treatments for it. And there's a lot of other examples where we name certain disorders or medication classes after things that actually are not very helpful and can actually hinder the learning process. But there are some medications that are able to treat treatment-resistant depression. And one that I've had experience with in my practice and in treating patients with is called Spravato. So Spravato, I've seen uh, positive results for my patients with uh, TRD. It's, It's a nasal spray, actually, that's added on top of a person's traditional oral antidepressant. Interesting. Okay. Now, if a listener or a loved one that they have is struggling with treatment-resistant depression, or they suspect that this might be the case, what should they do? Well, the first thing is to just reach out, reach out to a healthcare provider. So uh, unfortunately, there's still a significant amount of stigma in this country around depression in general, let alone treatment-resistant depression. So reaching out to a healthcare provider, and that can be scary sometimes. And so if if that's a little bit too difficult, just reach out to someone, reach out to a friend, a family member to get the courage to go to speak with a healthcare provider. Ideally, that would be a psychiatric provider like a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner or, or perhaps a psychotherapist, a counselor. But depending on where someone lives and uh, some various other factors, a psychiatric specialist may not be available uh, immediately. And so primary care providers are uh, a wonderful resource and can uh, facilitate referrals to psychiatric specialists. But the, the main thing is to not just try to suck it up and deal with it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but really reaching out because this can be an extremely serious condition. And it's always better with any medical condition to seek help earlier rather than later. Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned that there's still a stigma around depression and other mental health issues, but I think it's starting to get better as conversations start opening up around mental health and people are starting to not really focus on the stigma so much. But as you mentioned, it's still there. So what can we do in general to kind of start removing that stigma even more and making people realize that it's okay? to reach out for help and it's okay to be depressed or have a mental health issue that you need help with. And this is one of uh, my kind of crusades. I really want to try and break down the stigma because it does, it costs lives. As I said, uh, suicidal uh, thoughts and behaviors are very commonly associated with uh, major depressive disorder and uh, treatment resistant depression. But I think just uh, talking about it openly and honestly as a medical condition, you know, this is just a brain disorder. We just don't know. We don't have uh, any sort of MRIs or CAT scans or blood tests or anything that can detect it. In fact, the illness of multiple sclerosis, which is a very serious neurological condition, up until the invention of the MRI was believed to be psychosomatic, that it was something that was basically that uh, didn't really exist for the medical uh, field at the time, because all the tests they had at the time were normal. And then the MRI was invented. And when they scanned these people with the MRI, oh my gosh, they saw all these plaques and lesions and all these abnormalities that we just didn't have the technology to see before. And so that's where I think we're at with major depressive disorder is that we just don't have the technology to be able to detect the abnormalities in the brain. But this is a brain disorder, just like diabetes is a pancreas disorder and so on and so forth. It's something that is a medical condition, not a moral failure or weakness or flaw or laziness or 
whatever negative connotations someone might, might ascribe to it. Okay. So what are some available resources if someone wants help or more information on the topic or if they feel like they might be dealing with depression, whether treatment resistant or not, where should they go to learn more? Well, step one, reaching out to uh, a healthcare provider, a primary care provider, psychiatric specialist, therapist, et cetera. If someone is uh, having suicidal thoughts, though, then uh, we actually have a, a three-digit number now. Like there's 911 for general emergencies. There's 988 for a mental health emergency. So if someone out there is suicidal, then reach out to 988 and they can connect you with urgent mental health resources. And then and I mentioned the treatment I've seen benefits for some of my patients in my practice with treatment-resistant depression, Spravato. There is the, they have a website, spravato.com, where you can learn more about the potential benefits, potential risks of Spravato, the limitations of it, and get more information about finding a specific center that is able to uh, deliver the treatment. Okay, awesome. So step one, reach out to your healthcare provider if you or a loved one is experiencing depressive symptoms and you think it's worth reaching out for help. There is no reason to feel that there's a stigma. Go ahead and reach out to a healthcare provider. If it's a mental health emergency, 988 is the number to call, 988. And if you'd like to learn more about treatment-resistant depression treatments that are available, including Spravato, which Dr. Chepke has been talking about today, spravato.com, that's S-P-R-A-V-A-T-O.com. And Dr. Chepke, I want to thank you so much for being here and talking to us about this really important topic and letting people know that there are treatment options available, even if it's named treatment resistant. And for mm -hmm. other forms of depression, reaching out is the best way to go. So I really appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I just want to promote the message of hope out there. there there's always hope. Stay with us. The sun's shining, birds are singing, and all feels right in the world. Until the season changes, and suddenly you lose your motivation to get out of bed. In fact, one in five people experience some form of depression, no matter the season or time of year. At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, our vision is to build a mentally healthy nation for all, because we want you to live your best life and be your best you all year round. Please visit mentallyhealthynation.org to learn more. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Ken Sutcliffe, a retired firefighter, U.S. veteran, and ambassador for patients living with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, along with his wife and primary caregiver, Andy Sutcliffe. Firefighters and veterans are each twice as likely to develop ALS as those who haven't served in those professions. Ken and Andy, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us and allowing us to share our story. So most of us have heard of ALS, but might not know the specifics. So what exactly is ALS? ALS is, many people call it Lou Gehrig's disease, but it's also amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is a mouthful to say. Yeah. It's a neuromuscular disease that affects the motor neurons. And because of that, the motor neurons die off and you are you can send all the signals to your arm to move but it just won't okay now why are firefighters and members of the military more likely to develop it well and that is still under study and investigation but in the firefighting side they believe that 
it has to do a lot with the fact that firefighters operate a lot of times in a low oxygen environment because of the fires we're in and after fires and we're doing overhaul and we're breathing in a lot of different things that could be you know on a molecular level very toxic we don't know yet but unfortunately that job has a twice as likely chance of getting ALS as the general public and the same with the military they're not quite sure what the cause is there as well but unfortunately it is also a twice as likely to catch ALS as the general public wow and when did you first develop ALS so i retired from the Dallas Fire Department after 33 years in June of 2020 and in the late fall early winter of 2020 i was in the garage reaching up to get a uh, cooler off the top shelf my right arm shot right up there and my left arm shot right up there till it got about 80% of my reach of my right arm. And then all of a sudden it just didn't want to go. And I struggled to force my arm up there. And I was like, well, what the heck was that? And once I got the cooler down, I kind of went about my day and didn't think much of it. And eventually, you know, I noticed it started happening more and more. So I went and spoke with my doctor and they decided that I needed to go run some tests. Initially that they thought it was my shoulder. And then I did an odyssey of, of doctors and tests for things on my neck that it could be. And as those tests progressed, so did the weakness in my left arm as well as it began in my right arm. So eventually they told me to go to the ALS clinic here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, which I did. And November 22nd of 2021, I was diagnosed with ALS uh, on that day. Wow. Okay. So what are some of the treatment options for ALS? Well, there's not a lot. The treatment options are mostly medication and then a number of ALS patients take supplements or other things that they feel like may be helping them. But we, you know, got together with our doctor and came up with a plan and a series of medications to take. And that's what I've been doing. So right now I take a regimen of at least, I think, well, I couldn't tell you, but probably three medications that I take, uh, Redicava being one of those. And is there a cure for ALS? No, there's not. Unfortunately, it is a terminal disease. They usually give you three to five years. I'm on year three right now, but they give you three to five years. Some people live, depending on the kind of ALS itself, you may live longer, you may live not as long. It just really depends on that. And, you know, it's very important, I think, as we're talking about that in ALS, that People should know that you can go to shareyouralsstory.com and share your story because there's a lot of people out there with ALS and not everybody has the great support system that I happen to have or somebody else may have. And that allows those folks to share their story and learn about what others are going through. Nice. Okay. Andy, what has your experience been like as a caregiver for a firefighter living with ALS and specifically being your husband? To be honest with you, it's like taking a punch to the gut when you first find out. And the way that you get over that, you have to move forward as quickly as you can. And when Ken was diagnosed, it seemed at the time it was going a little bit slow. But what I would recommend to anybody is, along with sharing your story, we have found other people who have the same disease, but everybody's disease is different. It's unique to themselves. So this is our experience. So you partner with um, Mitsubishi Tambi Pharma and share your story to the program. 
and to raise awareness. And also, all medications may have side effects. So talk with your doctor to see if Radicaba may be a fit for you. And you can also go to radicata.com for prescribing and patient information. I would also say, again, a year ago today, Ken was walking. And right now, he is 100% disabled and in a wheelchair. So start the process as soon as you find out the diagnosis because there's studies ongoing all the time. See if you can get on a study, but do everything you can in advance of because that time flies by so quickly that you need to stay ahead of the curveball so that you can help the patient or your loved one or whoever it is to get the best care that you can. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Okay, now, Ken, you mentioned shareyouralsstory.com where people can share their stories about living with ALS or caregivers who are caring for people with ALS. What are some of the benefits of sharing your ALS story? Well, the, the biggest thing is to get yourself out there and let people know what's going on with you specifically because there's a lot of people that have ALS like I said earlier, that may not have the support that I have or someone else has. And I mean, having ALS can bring you into a dark place, trust me. And because of that, sharing your story may help those folks with ALS or allow anybody else, somebody that doesn't have ALS, just to see what the daily struggles are with ALS for people. And so going to shareyouralsstory.com allows us not only to see it, but to get your story out, which not only helps you, but other patients with ALS. Awesome. Okay. So once again, the website is shareyouralsstory.com, shareyouralsstory.com, and you can share your story of living with ALS. Caregivers can share their stories of caring for people with ALS, and it helps spread awareness and just that ability to know that you're not alone. So shareyouralsstory.com. And Ken and Andy Sutcliffe, I want to thank you both for being here and sharing your story with us today. It's very much appreciated, and I wish you both the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Looking to make a difference? Volunteer for your local fire department. Join a family that will serve with you, always have your back, and train you to be the best version of yourself. Visit makemeafirefighter.org. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with David Bihar, Director of Investigations at the Nevada State Contractors Board. Over the past year, the board has seen a significant increase in the number of solar complaints being filed by customers. David, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I appreciate it. So what exactly is the Nevada State Contractors Board? So the Nevada State Contractors Board is a quasi-government agency who's responsible for licensing all of the contractors throughout the state of Nevada. And we also deal with all of the complaints that are filed against contractors throughout the state as well. Okay. Now, what kind of solar scams should homeowners be aware of? So over the last year or so, we've seen a significant increase in the number of solar complaints that have been filed by consumers. And those types of complaints have encompassed things such as poor workmanship, installations with incorrect inverters, work outside the scope of a license, and quite a few scams that have been ongoing throughout the state. Okay, so why have these types of scams been on the rise recently specifically? Unfortunately, there's been some pretty significant sales tactics that have been employed throughout the state. 
Specifically, they tend to target seniors and some of the vulnerable members of our community. They're very aggressive in the way that they sell a system to somebody. They make a lot of promises, offer them things that they can't necessarily follow through with. So they're very convincing when they come to somebody's residence. Okay, so what should a homeowner do if someone comes to the residence offering solar services? Well, the first thing we would recommend, if it, if it sounds too good to be true, oftentimes that's probably the case. Don't be in a rush to feel like you're going to miss out on something if you don't sign a contract or enter into some type of agreement immediately. We would always recommend, whether it's a solar contract or any type of contracting service that you're looking to get, The first thing we would do is recommend that you validate that that person actually has a real active contract license with us. And they can simply do that by going online and checking that by either the name of the contractor, their license number, or the individual who's associated with the company. Okay. And then is just checking one contractor's background enough? Or like personally, I like to shop around and make sure that what they're saying they're going to give me is kind of in line with what others are offering. Absolutely. So we would we would always recommend to, to do yourself a favor and don't rush into anything. Get at least three bids for any type of service, particularly solar. And we would also recommend when you're checking to see if they have an active license, Further down on that, it'll notify you if that particular contractor or solar company has ever had any discipline filed against them, and that would be listed there on their license on that same page. Okay, so what is the website that they can go to if they want to check whether a contractor is licensed and whether they have any complaints? It would just be www.nscb.nv.gov. NSCB for Nevada State Contractors Board.nv.gov. Correct. And then there's a link right there, a little drop down to do a license search. It's going to be on our the first homepage that'll pull up on there. And then again, you can search that license by name, license number, or the company itself. Okay. Now, what is this SB 293 bill that's supposed to take effect in January? So during the last legislative session, the Attorney General's office, along with others, realized that some of the laws that were out there weren't quite strong enough. So they decided to move forward with a new piece of legislation that was passed, SB 293. Again, it's part of the consumer protection purpose of what the AG does. And kind of the thought behind that was to try to crack down on solar companies and some of their business practices, specifically what we talked about regarding scams or taking advantage of people who don't realize that they're entering into a long-term loan, for example, and to kind of help stop some of those practices. Okay, so what are some of the policies that will be in place next month after the bill passes as opposed to now? So one of the main pieces of that is going to involve the sales representatives that, that oftentimes go out to individual residences and try to push someone purchasing a solar system There's going to be some new requirements that are going to raise the level of accountability for the companies that are working with those sales personnel. Something else, those companies, those solar companies are going to be required to actually record the promise of the language that they're using in that contract, and they're going to have to maintain that recording for a period of time. So that's one of the things that has often occurred is that it turns into kind of a he said, she said thing where the homeowner feels that certain promises were guaranteed to them or rebates. But oftentimes they have nothing to fall back on other than one person's word against the other. Now that they're going to start recording those, there'll be an official record of that moving forward. 
Okay. And what type of recourse does a homeowner have if they do unfortunately fall prey to a scam and end up giving money to either an unlicensed contractor or just a scammer in general? So if they're a licensed contractor, they can file a complaint with us. They can also take action with the attorney general's office, depending on their individual circumstances. In the event it's an unlicensed contractor who maybe represented themselves a particular way, but it turns out they're not really who they say they are, that's something that someone can also file a complaint with the Nevada State Contractors Board on. And we have two sections, one that deals with the licensed contractors and one that'll deal with the unlicensed individual. Okay. And what's the Residential Recovery Fund? So the Residential Recovery Fund is something that's offered to people that are that own a single-family residence. In the event that they're harmed by a contractor and there's discipline that's ordered against that particular contractor, for example, their license might have been revoked or they did a project and abandoned them and they were harmed, they're eligible to submit a claim to us up to $40,000, depending on their individual circumstances, to recover that money. It's kind of a unique benefit of being somebody in the state of Nevada that's not offered in other places around the United States. Okay. Now, when you talk about unlicensed contractors, is it okay to use an unlicensed contractor or are you recommending that people always use only licensed contractors? So we would always recommend to do, as we talked about earlier, check to see if that person has an active valid license. In the event they don't, and oftentimes people will use an unlicensed contractor because they think in the long run it might be cheaper, they can save some money, they can cut a corner. Unfortunately, if they were to use an unlicensed contractor, that makes them ineligible for that recovery fund that we just talked about. And oftentimes people don't realize that, but they're not going to be eligible to possibly recoup some of that money if they ended up getting in trouble down the road. Again, it's illegal in the state of Nevada to contract without a license and to advertise unlicensed work. And we actually have criminal investigators that enforce those laws. But on a regular basis, people can receive a citation for that. And in some instances, if it's pretty egregious, the matter can even be referred to the district attorney or the attorney general's office for a criminal prosecution. Okay, awesome. Good to know. So tell us once again where people can go if they want to learn more about the Nevada State Contractors Board or look up whether a contractor has a license and whether there have been any complaints lodged against them. Sure. Once again, our website is going to be www.nscb.nv.gov. Our website is a, a great resource for lots of different issues and questions that people might have. And we would also recommend that if they have something they still can't find the answer to, they're always welcome to contact us directly, and we'd be happy to answer whatever issues they might have. Okay, perfect. So once again, that website is nscb.nv.gov. That stands for Nevada State Contractors Board, State of Nevada, nv.gov. So nscb.nv.gov. You can find out more about the Nevada State Contractors Board and what they do, or check if 
a contractor that you're thinking about working with does have an active license or not, and whether there are any complaints. So all of that can be done at nscb.nv.gov. And we've been speaking with David Bihar. He's the Director of Investigations at the Nevada State Contractors Board. And David, I really appreciate you being here and sharing with us what these recent scams are, how to avoid them, and recourse that can be taken if something unfortunate happens. So I appreciate your time so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Hailstorms can cause widespread damage to one's home. After these storms, dishonest contractors show up hoping to make a quick buck from your insurance claim. They'll promise anything if they can get you to sign a contract, collect your payment in advance, and ultimately do no work at all. Avoid being the victim of contractor fraud. It estimates from at least three contractors. Check references and remember, if you didn't request it, reject it. To report fraud, call us at 1-800-TELL-NICB. This is a public service message from the National Insurance Crime Bureau. This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Brian Walsh, mortgage expert and manager of financial planning for SoFi Bank. Homeownership is still a dream for many people, but there are some ins and outs to understand first. Brian, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So what do first-time homebuyers need to keep in mind when considering purchasing a house? Yeah, for first-time home buyers, I think it's really important, especially right now with property values high and interest rates uh, much higher than they've been in, in decades, to really figure out if it makes sense to buy or if it makes sense to rent. And to do that, it's all about looking at your budget, figuring out your purchase price, and then calculating the break-even time between buying a home versus renting a place, and then really assessing, okay, am I going to live in this home long enough to pass that break-even point because that point used to be, let's say, maybe three, five years, a couple of years ago, early on in the pandemic. Now we're probably looking at seven to 10 years on average from what I'm seeing. Okay. Now, as you mentioned, both real estate prices and interest rates are high right now. Don't they usually kind of balance each other out? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. They do. I mean, generally speaking, as, as interest rates and mortgage rates in particular go up that that should kind of dampen demand for you know homes because it just is more expensive to borrow money what we're seeing right now though is that there's an issue on the supply side of things too so not only are there not a ton of houses coming available to the market but then there's a lot of people who are in their existing homes that have locked in interest rates well below what the current rate environment is So they kind of have golden handcuffs on, so to speak, because if they sell their home to maybe upgrade, they're going to be trading in, let's say, a 3% mortgage for an 8% mortgage, and then that just means they're not selling. So we have an interesting kind of dynamic right now where we're seeing higher rates, but then property values are kind of stubborn because a lot of existing home buyers have mortgage rates that are so much lower than what the rates are right now. Okay, interesting. So if a consumer decides that it is time to buy a house, they've looked at their budget, they've made those calculations, how can they avoid that trap of high mortgage rates? So when it comes to a mortgage, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. Number one would be looking at what your mortgage term is going to be. If you have a short mortgage term, let's say a 15-year mortgage, the interest rate will be lower than what's on a 30-year mortgage which is great. The downside is your monthly payment would be significantly higher. So if you could afford that, that could be one way to go. 
Another option for people would be to make sure their credit score and their overall finances are in uh, good spots. So that way they get the most competitive rates. And there's simple things that people can do like, you know, monitoring their credit score, understanding what specific factor is either helping or hurting and making some changes there. Because even small changes in interest rates, maybe 0.25% can add up to tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the length of the mortgage and how expensive the home is. Yeah. Okay. Now, building a credit score is important in other areas as well. It, you know, for credit cards, for other loans, you typically get more favorable terms if you have a better credit score. So what are some steps that you would recommend when it comes to boosting that credit score and building it up? Yeah, generally we work with people in three different areas when it comes to a credit score. Number one, this may sound obvious, but it's overlooked is to know what your credit score is and know what's helping or hurting your credit score. There's tons of free tools out there. There's a credit score monitoring tool with SoFi, but research shows that even monitoring and staying on top of your finances helps you make better decisions. Number two would be to make sure that you're staying on top of your payments. Payment history is the largest factor when it comes to determining your credit score. So if you have a late payment or a missed payment, that can really hurt you. So automating payments to make sure that you're always making them on time and in full is very important. And number three would be your credit cards. Credit utilization, which is basically how much of your total limit for your credit cards you're currently using, is the second biggest factor. And it's also really expensive. So paying down credit card debt can you know, drive fairly quick changes depending on what your current utilization rate is. Okay, nice. Now, when it comes to veterans and their families, what are some of the loan options specifically available for them? Thankfully, veterans have access to VA loans. And essentially, a a VA loan is going to be backed by the Department of, of Veteran Affairs. And because the VA guarantees a portion of that home loan, typically we'll see lower interest rates, lower closing costs, no mortgage insurance, and even no down payment requirement, which can make the barriers to buying a home much lower. So I think if, if you're a veteran or if you're eligible for a VA loan, I think it's, it's certainly important to explore how that would affect your home buying experience. Okay, nice. Now, what are mortgage points? So essentially with mortgage points, it, it's a way to I guess, buy down the rate on your mortgage where you're, you're more or less saying, okay, I'm going to spend X amount of money in order to reduce the interest rate on my mortgage by, you know, 0.125% or 0.25%. And I think at this point in time, it's important to explore the cost benefit of that because lower interest rates can have a very, very big impact. At the same time, it's not always going to mean that it's a good idea or it's a bad idea to you know, buy points on your mortgage. It really is about just doing the math and saying, okay, here's what the lender is offering to buy down points. Here's how much it's going to save me and how long it's going to take me to kind of get those savings to outweigh the cost that I have to pay. Because right now we're seeing people struggle with down payments, closing costs, all those other things uh, that, that may lead to them being a little bit cash strapped. Okay. 
Now, if someone does all the math and they decide, okay, I'm going to put off buying for now, I'm going to continue renting, maybe buy in five years, or maybe they decide 10 years, what should they do with their money in the meantime? What sort of investment strategies or savings would you recommend? Yeah, really, we're focusing on on two things uh, with that group of people. Number one, making sure that you have a very solid financial foundation. So having an emergency fund built up to three to six months worth of expenses, paying down any sort of bad debt that you have, making sure you're investing for retirement, building your credit score. So that way you're in a really solid position whenever you decide to pull the trigger. Beyond that, it really depends on what that time frame is. Generally, if you plan on using the money in the next, let's say, three years, that money shouldn't be invested. It should be put in a high-yield savings account, maybe CDs, maybe treasuries that aren't subject to the risk of the market because no one really knows where the stock market's going to be in a few years. Anything beyond that, it's really going to be a balancing act. For the longer out the time frame is, the more you could have invested in the stock market to earn higher return because you're not going to need it as soon so you could deal with some ups and downs. All right. So where could people go if they want to find out more about the options around home loans and mortgages? Yeah, you can go to SoFi.com, S-O-F-I.com. Tons of great free resources, including complimentary access to financial planners that can walk through this or really any other financial topic and, and give you some insights and expertise on how to handle it. Perfect. Okay. So SoFi.com is the website to go to SoFi, S-O-F-I.com. And you can find a lot more information there as well as free resources. We've been speaking with Brian Walsh, SoFi Manager of Financial Planning. Brian, I want to thank you so much for being here, sharing your expertise and giving some real world tips and strategies that people can use. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Serving my country changed my life forever. And when I got home, every day was a struggle. I felt trapped. But everything changed the day my family received a specially adapted custom home from Homes for Our Troops. Now we have a safe and accessible home to enjoy the freedom I fought for. Homes for Our Troops builds and donates specially adapted custom homes nationwide for severely injured post-9-11 veterans. Join our mission at hfotusa.org. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. The Just One Project's end-of-year giving campaign is happening through December 29th at the Giving Machine in downtown Summerlin. You can also make a one-time donation online or become a charitable gangster by signing up for monthly donations that will help feed local community members in need. Find out more, make a donation, sign up for monthly donations, or become a volunteer at thejustoneproject.org. That's thejustoneproject.org. Three Squares 14th Annual Holiday Match Campaign is happening through December 31st. This campaign's designed to double your impact in our community throughout the holiday season as all donations are matched thanks to the generosity of Nevada Gold Mines operated by Barrick, Boyd Gaming Corporation, and Intermountain Healthcare. So now every dollar donated can provide up to six meals for hungry residents in Southern Nevada. Donate, volunteer, or find out more at 3square.org. That's 3square.org. 
Miracle Flights is lighting up downtown Summerlin for the holiday season with their third annual Lights for Flights display of seven positive words through January 1st. Lights for Flights is an interactive holiday experience and photo op that also lets shoppers give back to the nonprofit Miracle Flights. Get more info or make a donation at miracleflights.org. That's miracleflights.org. The Las Vegas Natural History Museum's running its holiday exhibit, A December to Remember, through January 7th. It includes community displays, interactive activities, and workshops that showcase various holiday traditions. And they also have a new permanent international wildlife gallery called Biomes Beyond Borders. The museum's located on North Las Vegas Boulevard at Washington near Cashman Field and the Neon Museum. You can find out all the details on their various exhibits and events at lvnhm.org. That's lvnhm.org. Or follow them on Facebook and LinkedIn at Las Vegas Natural History Museum and at LVNH Museum on Twitter and Instagram. The College of Southern Nevada, or CSN, is starting their spring classes on Tuesday, January 16th, with late registration from January 17th to 22nd. They offer a mix of online and in-person classes, and CSN was just named one of America's top online colleges by Newsweek. Check out all their certificates, associate degrees, and bachelor degree programs at csn.edu. That's csn.edu. And Vegas Stronger is holding their Polar Plunge Challenge on Thursday, January 18th from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Vegas Stronger, 916 North Main Street, south of Washington. They also have opportunities to get involved by volunteering, holding a hygiene drive or food drive, or handing out golden tickets. Find out more or make a donation at vegasstronger.org. That's VegasStronger.org. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.